what we all need to do and can do and should do to, in the area of protecting our families, protecting our children, protecting our civil rights. And it takes the village. When I say the village, I mean parents, attorneys, it takes the community, it takes grassroots organizations, it takes <coughs> legislators, and, and certainly groups and forums like this, which we definitely need to have more often. Um, so thank you for taking time out today to be here. Um, here is a video I'd like for you all to see because it, it, you will understand the background and it plays as a background. I hope you guys can hear me okay. Can you hear me okay? No. 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 Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah, I'm double matched. Can you give me a little better now? Okay. So, so it plays as a backdrop to what I will um, be discussing so that you can understand the force and the impact and the effect that it has on parents in everyday life because I am in the courtroom every day fighting this battle. So um, this is just very compelling. Use the mic. Okay, very well. Yes, I will use the mic. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So, let's see how we're doing with that link. And then I would like to um, have uh, a few minutes of content here, and then uh, with respect to the history and uh, the disproportionality of minority families and children in the system, and how historically how that came to be. Because we look at how it exists right now, and you think, well, wait a minute, how, how did how did I be here? How, how did this happen? And, and where am I? Uh, you know, like Dorothy and, and Linda, where, where, where am I? No, no. So here we go. You can see um, what's happening with some of my clients. Thank you. My is acting and her son and her daughter inside the officials came to the house to remove the daughter from the home. came to the attention of Child Protective Services after she decided to stop giving her 13-year-old's controversial antipsychotic medication. The Department of Human Services attempted to take the child from the mother. Barricaded herself in the home, and this lasted 10 hours. Ian was hauled up to prison for five days. Ariana is now at a pediatric psychiatric facility where Don Boldo claims she's being abused. To say today, defending her rights as a parent is the question. Who decides what the best medical care is for a child? Um, I'm just determined 
when she is something that you have to deal with and that you have to pay attention to, you don't ignore Antonio Baldwin. You just don't. I always told her that she was like Venus and Serena on court. The way she, they would come at us, I tell you, they were throwing all kinds of things at us. And there were several attorneys, a lot more of them than the ones of us. But Allison had those motions and they'd send it across the court and she'd send it back. It was just absolutely incredible. It was a wonderful thing to see. And I said, wow, this is for me and for my daughter. I can't believe it because I've never had anybody fight like that for me. So it was Because my client's life and their child's life 
is that saying? This is not child's play. This is not, you can't be a lawyer that goes along to get along and singing skip to my loo type of law. When I tell you that this is about, because they're coming at you from all angles. Right? I don't just like one attorney. No, you usually see in court one prosecutor, one attorney. No, you're fighting four different lawyers and the judge. And I do fight the judge. You know, excuse me if you are offended by, you know, my posture. This is how it's going down. You know, you've got to take this child off of these drugs. You've got to get this child out of this environment because it's killing this child. And you have to be fierce. You have to be fearless. I have to tell them this is not a free for all. For you to do anything you want to do with my child, I take it like my child. I'm the voice of those parents who are not able to fight and look a psychiatrist in the eye and say, no, you're going to open that book and you're going to tell me the truth about what you're doing to this child right now. And you're going to release the child right now. Because they cannot win. You are not speaking to a lawyer that is going to give in. It's no time to cower down now. I have to come and say, let's get into this. And we've got to win. I'm not going to court. I'm ready for war. Because you started the war and I'm not a stranger. I'm 
meeting actually in a um, how that this was sent in a PDF format. Oh. So I think what we're gonna have to do is if you're okay with okay. this, I'm here with you. Thank you. We just need to use the downer Okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. So, yeah. So, uh, in Marianne's mind, what started, what came to her when they said with that CPS finger, we will take, I will take your child. You know what came to her mind? Slavery. And when black children were being sold on the market for value, right? And all of these things. So the history embedded in the American slavery collided with the policies and the practices of child protective services throughout the country and, and, and as well as now in 2021. Forced family separation has been a fixture of the lives of black people. And the state sanctions to women and white, they, they have no prejudice of color. No, they, no, they don't. No, they do say that again. Pardon me? I said you can say that again. I yeah, no, no, it's no eerie. Yeah, it, it's eerie. It, you know, there are no, uh, I call them equal opportunity offender, right? Um, but but as this, this, this class, or this workshop, is it, in terms of the minority and the perspective that um, they bring, how, you know, because they wonder, you know, and, and I'll just tell you, you and I'm, I'm going to just be very open, honest, and frank with you. You know, the whole thing is, especially with minorities, it's like you have this, somehow you have this aggression, you have this, you know, predisposition to be angry and upset. When, when you know your history and your understanding that this is not a joke. It probably won't bring the child back. And they're talking here talking about fair play. And if you do this, then you know we can put you into the programming and make you the parent that you really need to be. So those those things are you know. So and I just have a little information here I just like to share with you since that was the. Um, Topic that gives. So, so the the so these children um, that were made a part of a lucrative business. So when we talk about the rights of CPS and the minority community, we must set the historical foundation for when the inherent fear and distrust and unwillingness to comply with the system, as this visual uh as this visual projects minorities and african americans in particular know all too well that not only parental rights did not the parental rights did not exist but that even today and for the hispanic population especially children's labor um, and uh remain valuable <coughs> along with the physical labor children need by the state to have unfit parents and placed into adoptive homes is fortunate not only to you lose ties to culture and language and, and country, history and identity, but contend with the societal expectations that they must be and should be grateful for a better life in the face of all that it took in losing their family. There is already a precedent for keeping these children in the United States after a parent, a parent has been deported, and we're talking about Hispanic um, minorities here, and denying the parental rights to these minorities because they were detained or incarcerated. And African Americans confront these realities daily. Black families are separated by the child welfare system and the criminalization of poverty. These factors lead to family separation and the loss of their children. Child welfare advocates recognize the link, even they recognize the link between the disproportionate number of black children in the foster care system and the foster care to prison pipeline, which is very real. All of the contemporary systems of power are echoes of legal and social 
likely child removal history. So when we talk about the arbitrary, capricious, yet life-altering decisions on removing children, we are daily reminded that a black or minority parent as a foundation, as a foundation, has no voice when it comes to states making removal decisions that are right with implicit bias. So, and then I'm going to open it up for discussion and Q&A because I'd like to do more of that than that. So our Constitution promises to protect citizens from oppressive state policy. But for black and brown families, the, the, the notion of due process and equal protection under the law is not honored with, with, with respect to parental rights in our child welfare system. These child welfare programs and priorities are distorted by ideologies about race, class, and individual responsibility that have absolutely nothing to do with children's safety or well-being. So in 1899, Illinois passed the Juvenile Court Act, which created courts for delinquent or neglected children who are under 16 years old. These jurists envisioned these courts as a place of social rehabilitation and revolution in the attitude of the state toward the offending child. <coughs> but this burst of progress was not without its fight, especially for black children who were considered degenerate from birth. So we know from this that Chicago is the birthplace of our children's court system, the juvenile court system. And as this court system began to take shape, Civil rights activists, Ida B. Wells, grew concerned that these courts were falling short of, of true justice. Her concerns were, her concerns were not headed by the juvenile court system, promised to protect the child in cases where family or neighborhood failed them, meaning the village. So these court systems advocate and benevolent philosophy um, philosophical ideas of the goals and intentions of the court, but these ideas never took off ground for poor people of color. In the 1950s, child welfare institutionalization replaced segregation as a moving forum for poor black families. In Chicago, the birthplace of the juvenile justice system. The birthplace of they started it. But yet, in that same city, 95% of the city's foster care children were black. Um, one of the things I'd like to say about um, how the, the courts started and the, the history behind it, with all of the meaningful, good, and well-intended notions and gestures, was that it has no, it had no true check mechanism or oversight. Now, that was 1899. We weren't talking about the Court of Appeals. We weren't talking about a uh, Supreme Court. It existed, but who could go there, right? You, you barely could go into regular state courts, okay? There was no check mechanism in 1899. 2021, guess what? There's still no check mechanism. None. Why? Because first of all, the families, and, and you're right, it's, 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 they do not respect a person. Black people and minorities are disproportionately targeted, and I'm going to talk about that. How do we get, before we get into the, <laughs> our court is called the Lincoln Hall of Justice, I call it the Lincoln Hall of Injustice, right? Before we get into the Hall of Justice, 
speak into the jurisdictions of the court. Why am I that person? What happened? Because the doctor recommended another type of medication. My insurance didn't cover it. So I had to pay $1,000 for the asthma medication for my child. Uh, even though I told the doctor several times, it's noted in the chart, you take my child, medical neglect, because now my child has my asthma, asthma attack and winds up in the hospital. What do you think is going to happen? So when we talk about um, who do I go to when judges don't get it right, judges haven't got the right for years. That's why you have a court of appeals and a Supreme Court and you know, circuit uh, appellate court and, and, and the United States, because judges, everyday judges, don't always get it right. And they will, and I will say, I have spoken at the American Bar Association to a room full of judges, and guess what? They have said, we didn't get it right. Why? Because they're, you know, first of all, and I, I talk about some of this, so please pardon me if I'm going off script here, okay? But there is, there is no um, father may I. There is no um, to, to what I do as a judge, right? Not really. Uh, there is actually, but in practicality, there is not because you, got, you have to be appealed. Families are not going to appeal you. The process, the, there's no lawyer. You don't have a right to an attorney, unless you've been terminated, okay, you can, you can ask for court appointed attorney. And even they have, those have problems. But because there, it's like, <laughs> the policies and practices and procedures are like quicksand. It, it's just like, it's nothing. It doesn't hold, it's not substantive. It's willy-nilly. It's, it's, I can create whatever law I want to apply to you. How does that work? How does it work when, when the, the standard of proof is, is, is um, by probable cause standard, one, just one. Now you charge me with a hundred things, and all you have to do is come up with one of these hundred things that you said about me to probably it be true. By then, you have taken my time. That's not a standard, right? It's not like proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I, most parents are about to be locked up than have their child out somewhere where, where they're not in their custody. Lock me up, okay? But don't take my child. Give my child to my sister, my brother, my mom, somebody. So to have a watered-down standard, meaning no further proof, and then the lawyers, do you have any lawyers in here? How many lawyers do you have in here? Okay, one of them, yeah. So, and then we know that the rule, at least in Michigan, the rules of evidence don't apply. Well then, really? That's interesting. Yeah, well, and, and we're gonna talk about that. But it's not, it's not, it's like the legal standard. I have nothing to fight with. It's like sending a warrior out to war and I don't have any tools. I don't, I don't have anything to fight with. So you're just letting anything in. I was in court on uh, Thursday. And again, I'm objecting. I don't care that the rules of evidence don't apply. My nature, I'm going to object. Okay? I'm going to make a record for my client because guess what? The court of appeals will say, well, you never raised the issue. Well, if, you, if you're a lawyer that's scared to bring it up, because you think the judge is going to say, counsel, the rules, you know that MCR, blah, 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 you know, the rules of evidence don't apply. Well, you know what, judge, they should. So I'm just going to object, okay? Because now you are bringing in something from 1991 to make something more or less probable that happened last week. It's not relevant. It's not relevant. It, it has no propensity to make this fact of issue any more or less probable, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have CPS workers speculating, judge, that's speculation, rules of evidence don't apply. 
Well, no, what that means, Your Honor, is that she doesn't know. But if I can't raise the issue, then we, so then we wonder how we got in the door. Do you see what I'm saying? We, we talk about how did I get here, that same lack of standard. So that's why we need to, we must lobby the, the politicians, our representatives, to say, hello, people, back in 1899, there were no standards. Those courts operated in, in secret, essentially. We do whatever the heck we want to do with your child. And the same is true today. Because we, as a community, are not, we're so busy fighting each and every little battle that we abandon the war. We need the warriors. I, I represented um, Muslim parents, and guess what? They brought the whole, I don't know where they got all those people from. <laughs> but the hallway was full of Muslims. And guess what? The, de the deputy went into the judge's uh, chambers and like, Does the counselor can we come in my chamber to talk about it? Oh, now we want to talk about it. That's good. That, that's good. But that discussion needs to happen in the screening mode. CPS workers don't have a filter. So they can pick on you because you have short cut hair, and they can grab you because you have glasses and a mustache. And, and you know, and no one, and there's nothing wrong with it because the Lucy Goosey standard can be anything. You don't have referees saying, well, why are we here, Miss um, Jones, PPS worker? Right? Why, why, why are we here? A parent has the right to choose the course of medical treatment for a child. Okay, mom is doing that. Okay, just because mom disagrees does not mean that there is medical negligence. What happened? She, she, she weaned her child with the doctor's permission. She weaned her child off of a harmful drug that has a black box warning from the, F, uh, uh, from the Food and Drug Administration. And that's why? Because she signed something? Say, and she actually signed up and say, I know that this, this drug has no guarantees. I know, you know, there's, there's nothing guaranteed. So, you know, um, but I can withdraw my consent at any time, informed consent. What about this, Judge? How, how about this document? Exhibit B. No, counselor. Be quiet, sit down, and shut up. I would show to sit down and shut up a while. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. And thank God I'm still standing, okay? But, so, so, so when we talk about the court, which is where all of this plays out, unless we do things to reform it, how it actually works, so that it can actually work, right? And I talk about, in some of my stories, I, I, I have a little bit more to talk about the problem, okay? But I talk about the problem. But we, I'm also going to talk about the solution, okay? So, so, let me, so they wanted to, to socially rehabilitate these children, um, but then, you know, they say, oh, well, you're a lost cause. You're degenerate from birth. So we're not going to listen to anything you say. And, and I agree. It, it's whether you're poor, right? It can be poor. Guess what else? You can know too much. <laughs> you can know too much. You can ask too many questions. You can be too intelligent. They, they, they don't just discriminate against the unintelligent. I have clients who are airline pilots, scientists, patent attorneys. And guess what? I have to fight for them, just like I have to fight for the mother who has a great card. This is the same thing, right? So when we talk about the system, this is a system.
system where parents are, you guys keep me on track, where parents are presumed, and I, I'm, I'm trying to stick with the minorities, but I think you raise that issue. Yes, it, it applies to every, everyone. So when we're talking about welfare within the system and, and looking at all of the children and, um, and being fair across the board, then we, we have some, some work to do because you can spend any given day at a dependency court in any major city and you will unmistakably see children of color. And it's not just because, you know, they're more in that population. Um, Black children make up more than two-fifths of the foster care population. The average day for white children in foster care is about 24 months. The average day for African-American children is about 40 months. And as I indicated earlier, in Chicago, black children make up 95% of the city's foster care population. Foster care professionals and judges are allowed to substitute their own judgment for the well-being of children. So, so when you're talking about best interests, like now there are 12 factors uh, in Michigan. I'm sure there are probably 12 factors all throughout the rest of the state. And say those those factors lead toward keeping the child in the home. I just had a, um, a victory a couple months ago where it's a whole long story about uh, my client's child was uh, molested by a, a, a distant relative who came to visit. And they didn't know anything about it. And by the time when they, when they learned it, when she started on, this, on her child's phone, she took her straight to the police station and reported it. The child um, was uh, deemed to, she had uh, some uh, degenerative kidney disease. And mom was bringing her back. She, she was in stage four or something of that nature. But she got it back to like stage two or stage one, something of that nature. I don't want to miss stage, stage. But mom was working for her to see it was, she was doing in the process of doing very well. But because you should have paid more attention to what happens happening in your house type of thing, you should have known, you should have seen it. Don't leave him alone with that. No other indication, but um, the, the judge did agree that the child should stay in the home. So. When we talk about the operation of the court system, we have to be radical people. We, that's the only way we, I got victory in that Marianne Gabolo case and all of the other cases that I've had around the country is that we rally people together to come because, but for uh, this situation, you will be next, right? And so, isolation. Oh, they love isolation. That's what they do. That, and that's, that's, they love isolation. And, and that's what I mean by the courts operate in secret. Because oh, who, who, comes, who comes to court watch in, in children's court? Nobody. Yeah, they're, they're not even open to the public in the, in the laws of most states. I mean, under California law, I, didn't, I never knew. The only way I could know what was happening with my girlfriend losing her kid was with talking to the CPS and the workers and basically I didn't even know what proceedings were and so on. The court records are sealed. Also the also mental health court records are sealed. I did see a see some copies of of them but they're sealed and that's a, that's not fair. Mental health courts are also not open to the public in many places. Right. So that's, yeah. that's by invitation. Right. And and see that's that's why I, and I'm telling you, and then they divide the parents. Pardon me? They divide the parents. Yeah, they divide the parents against one another. But that's what I'm saying in terms of 
grassroots organization coming together um, and uh, other parents um, email these are these are public servants that we have a duty to say I'm not agreeing with what you're doing in this particular case we we flooded this judge's email she couldn't she couldn't get a regular email in because of all the people in the community and then she finally said, well, <laughs> a parent has the constitutional right to make a medical decision for her child. Is that right? <laughs> after, after, after you took her and put her in a, a, a city uh, insane asylum, essentially, drug her with God knows what, now you have this epiphany that moms have the constitutional right to do exactly what So, so when, when, when people, so there has to be a more centralized effort in every state to be able to assist because I, when the, when the lights are on, these, these, these things matter. These things are affecting Um. We talk about some of the purposes of community-centered approach um, for family group decision-making. So these family team meetings, you know, it's like, can I get somebody else to see that minorities should not just be, and I'm not talking about cases where, you know, there are cases where the kids, the kids are, should not be in the hospital. Okay? You got to get yourself together. If you're loving uh, fentanyl, methamphetamine, and all this other stuff, and the baby gets a hold to it and almost dies, turns blue, and you got to call 911, that's a problem, right? So what we're talking about, uh, you don't have enough food in the refrigerator. You got mold in the bathroom. Exactly. Whatever happened to the social, the real social work? You're supposed to be aiding the people, help people. That's what you're, you're here to do. Help with the, the programs and, and services um, where they are appropriate. Um, so, so these family group decision making being open to, you know, everyday citizens. Um, I think your hand. What you're presenting is astounding to me. I'm hearing this for the first time. Even though I've been around family issues, I've never dug into this aspect. And it seems to me like what you're saying is essentially a huge portion of the juvenile justice system operates essentially without the norms and practices of justice that we're used to in the adult court. The whole system. Correct. And this is a, a massive injustice system that needs huge reform. And one of the things with the new thing the Department of the Federal Department of Justice and the Attorney General on this reporting on parents, that's going to hit a lot of people. How do we, is there something underway? Is, are you connected with a group? Are there groups across the country that are involved in the political efforts needed to bring about this reform? At the professional well, level or the citizen? So I'm, I'm on a executive board of Toronto Rights Network. That's all we have. So um, groups like RoyalRights.org and other organizations. Uh, Family Preservation Foundation are the only two. Okay, so, so but there needs, there needs to be more. There, there needs, and that's what I'm saying, there has to be a centralized effort because the, the rules and the law are so watered down that it is effectively ineffective. You don't have, it's like a toothless wife. You have nothing to fight with because the legislature said that it's, it's okay to have a standard that says you can throw everything, the, the whole kitchen sink approach on the law and see what sticks. And if one thing sticks, if I find out probably Probably one thing happens, or one thing might be true, then you can you can effectively kill me as a parent and terminate my rights to my family. 
So when we talk about race within child welfare, we know that race influences child welfare through strong and deeply embedded stereotypes about black family dysfunction. And I will, I will tell you that, um, and I, I'm going to keep it 100. I mean, my, my black women clients, they are, I mean, all moms mama, are mama bears, but this whole history of, um, of what has happened um, takes take place and, and historically with removal of black children and the way they process taking my child comes across to a CPS worker like, why aren't you conforming? Why are you, why are you so upset? You have anger problems. You are this, you are that, you are crazy, you are and, and it's like, it's, yeah, and so, so when we talk about filtering out and truly making a system so that there are no biases in, I mean, I, I know that sounds like an ideal world, but I'm going to give you some solutions just very shortly. Oh, I um, and so we can't criminalize um, being poor, we can't um, mentally ill. Mentally ill. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And, and just being different. That's why my girlfriend How about, how, how about you know, you're, you're not great. There's nothing wrong with you. There are people who, I, I call them a little left of center. You're just a little left of center, okay? <laughs> That's all. You're just a little left of center. They think on a whole different strategy than most of us, okay? And they're all on the same side. The only one on the opposite side is a parent. Yeah, but, but it's, it's, so that is not to be, and because the CPS worker can put anything they want to in that petition and turn it into a court order, and, see, and, and the, the court appointed lawyers will go and weigh the, the, the probable cause. That's the only filter and screen you have. And we say, oh, termination? Oh, be quiet, um, Mr. Jones. Your Honor, we're going to weigh. What is the only thing I can say right now about saving my children and making a record? You want me to be quiet? When you have a lawyer by your side in these hearings, you better be saying something. Well, you better be saying something very impactful because you may not have that opportunity until a trial. And the other problem is that in most states, you don't get a jury trial. He did the same body judge that just took, said I can't even visit with my kids. How is that fair? Right? So we have to legislate. We have to. Black children are overrepresented in juvenile courts. We know that. Black children are in foxfield. We know that. But black children start home and being out there. Stay indifferent. They don't care. Nobody cares. So, so how do we correct the law? How, how, do, we, how do we change things? And, and that's where I'm, that's what I am extremely, extremely passionate. We cannot sit and let these things happen. And as I say, go skip to Malou out of the courthouse. We have to, lawyers, make a record. Say, judge, I believe, but there's no substance to the case. Your Honor, I need to make a record. There's no substance to the case. I believe my client has been profiled. And rather than the profile is a poor person, a black person, an indigenous person, a Hispanic person, whatever the case is, you must make a record because you may get the opportunity to bring this up in the Court of Appeals. If you don't say anything, there's nothing there, and the Court of Appeals loves to say it was not brought up in the lower court. I mean, something I can do. You can't just come here and start arguing for the first time something you didn't even raise. Raise the issue. Attorneys must work to make the victory on one case a victory for all cases. That means when you win, uh, lawyer, come back and, and file a brief, file a memorandum, and say, this is what happened. Call grassroots organizations, call the ACLU, and say, you need to take a look at this case so that when they do their lawsuit, your case can be one of them. Don't just move on. And if we're, it's very 
it's very tempting to move on because you got more battles to fight. But you can't leave that case without the statement that this is profiling or whatever, whatever it is. Um, a huge problem, okay, I talked about no rules of evidence. Um, you don't check your constitutional rights at the door because you're in juvenile court. Um, and um, when, oh, you know, when we cross-examine, we have to really challenge. And there are some people who have to represent themselves. I've had clients that hired me later and say, I, you know, I had to let the court point the lawyer go because they were, they were hurting me. They were harming me. They're buddies with, the, with all the lawyers over here beating me down. Um, but you have to cross-examine and challenge these social workers and these foster care workers because they are counting your child in the statistics of their foster care records so that they can get, at least in Michigan, $12,000 for every case that signed up to be a foster care placement. Child got an ADHD check, that's more money, right? So, you know, cross-examining self-work. What is your training? What, um, your, your implicit bias training, your track record, how, how you know, your, your, your screening mechanisms. Uh, both the state statistical data uh, on the over-policing of black and minority families and make a record. Um, litigate the case as if it is a civil rights violation. Why? Because it is. All the lawyers here know, issue, rule, application, conclusion. Bring it up. I wouldn't care if the judge doesn't think it's not relevant. It is relevant. It's relevant that you brought us in here. If you have a minority client, their race is relevant, so it's a relevant issue. Um, lobby the legislators uh, to raise the burden of proof, um, probable cause, and mandate jury trials. Um, there is hope. We can do this. We really can do this. But it takes everyone. It really does. We have to put our bootstraps, fill up our bootstraps, and, and, and work together um, as a community so that we can have equal justice for all. Thank you.